Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again, back after the usual break in the action. Without any unnecessary chit-chat or chatter about what I've been up to and why this next installment took this long, let's get right into it. I'm using Lynn Joyner's excellent book, Honorable Survivor, Mao's China, McCarthy's America, and the Persecution of John S. Service, published in 2009 by the Naval Institute Press. We left off around the time of the Hunan Famine, 1942 to 44. Three million people perished from starvation. 30 rose bowls filled to capacity. No food to eat. All died. Imagine that if you can. I can't. John's service was one of the first to run into this disaster and get the word out to, among others, Theodore White. White, together with Times of London journalist Harrison Foreman, went out and covered the extent of the Hunan famine and in March 1943 got the story out to the world. Except the story Theodore White told in Time magazine didn't actually get out. And in this episode, we're going to focus on the reasons why his story got out, but at the same time didn't get out. The manner in which national policy and ad hoc decisions were made regarding China were decided from behind Roosevelt's desk in the Oval Office. Now, in a normal functioning executive branch, a president will pick someone to handle all these details for him and report to him using all these vast resources of the State Department. But Roosevelt, just as Nixon did when he opened up China in 1972, went around his Secretary of State, who, in 1943, uh, was, of course, still Cordell Hull. No, the way FDR liked to run things was to surround himself with trusted aides and cronies and have them find out you know, what needed to be found out. And because these men worked directly for the president, they had a lot of access and resources and because this is how FDR ran things, if you wanted to lobby the executive branch, you had to deal with these gatekeepers to the Oval Office. And in 1943, the main gatekeeper for FDR, as far as China was concerned, was Lachlan Curry, who we mentioned last time. Curry officially served as an economic advisor to Roosevelt, but the big guy also made him the point man for China affairs. He had already made a couple of trips to Chongqing, Chongqing to meet with the KMT and CCP representatives and to do a whole big fact-finding thing. As a result of his visit, Curry was responsible for getting Lend-Lease turned on in China and was knee-deep in the Chiang Kai-shek Vinegar Joe Stilwell feud. But he was the guy. If you wanted to get in a good word with FDR, Lachlan Curry was your man. So, you had four sides. The KMT and the CCP, of course, deadly enemies since the Shanghai Massacre in 1927, but forced to pretend to get along to fool the Americans. Now, besides the KMT and the CCP, you also had two factions in the U.S. You had the very powerful and formidable supporters of Chiang Kai-shek and the entire nationalist regime, then lined up against these stalwarts in the government and business were the so-called China Specialists. Guys like John Service, John Patton Davies, Owen Lattimore, Joseph Stilwell, Clarence Gauss, and John Vincent Carter, to name a few. They spent a lot of years in China and just called it like they saw it, and that made them appear very anti-Jiang. Very little of what they sent up the chain of command was complimentary of the Generalissimo and his handling of the war effort against Japan. So back in D.C., 
you were lined up on one side or with the other. Remember back in 2001 when George Bush said, you're either with us or with the terrorists. That was not too far off from the atmosphere in 1942-43 with respect to the nationalist government, of course, led by Chiang Kai-shek. This issue was nothing to be neutral about. And the flip side to not being a nationalist government supporter meant you were a supporter of the Chinese communists, ergo a communist sympathizer, and probably a closet communist yourself. So all this negativity flowing out of Chongqing about how rotten a job Jiang was doing went against the grain as far as how everything and everything about the merits of the nationalist government was being spun in the halls of power and in the press, most notably, of course, by Henry Luce and his Time Life publications. And it wasn't just Henry Luce. Once the smoke had cleared at Pearl Harbor, Hollywood, too, jumped right into the fray and stoked the myths about what was happening in China. 1942 saw the Flying Tigers, Lady from Chongqing, 1943, uh, Night Plane from Chongqing, and 1944 brought us Dragon Seed and 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Jiang was America's darling and his lovely, elegant, educated, well-spoken, and best of all, Christian wife, Song Meiling, was the absolute jewel in his crown. She was his shining star as far as galvanizing total American support went. Who could resist her? She was like uh, Aung San Suu Kyi without the tragedy. She represented China and all that China was as far as the generally uninformed American Lao Baixing were concerned. So anyone who said, in so many words, these nationalist political and military leaders were bad at their job, they really were a lone salmon swimming against a very strong current. The three big issues of the day that had caused such a huge rift in the U.S.-China policy had to be handled carefully. These three hot-button issues were the matter of the obvious KMT dictatorship and the censorship and terror that went along with that, the corruption in the land-lease program, and the general state and achievements to date of the Nationalist Army. The China specialists all kept pointing fingers at this and kept inferring that the Nationalists weren't being a reliable ally. The CKS supporters covered it all up and said, you know, what are you guys talking about? And these two groups just took endless pot shots at each other, sometimes directly, but mostly through their proxies and allies. And they battled it out in the halls of power, in Chongqing and in D.C., a lot of powerful and influential people believed. We had early on backed the nationalists and that the moment had arrived for our man, Chiang Kai-shek. His moment had come on the world stage, but he was under attack from not only the Japanese from without, but the communists from within. So anything that was put out there that undermined Chiang, these guys didn't like it. And they especially didn't like it if anything negative made it up to the president's level, or even to Lachlan Curry's. So Teddy White's March 1943 piece, which does not paint CKS in an attractive light, is completely watered down under Henry Luce's orders. What made it into Time magazine was a, was a tragic and horrific story, but the politics and the inferences about who should have done what and when you know, were surgically removed from the story. And for years now, all these guys like John Service, who were resourceful, 
reliable and rational men on the ground who use their language skills to go to a lot of these nooks and crannies of the country, and they gathered information and reported back to their superiors. And if there was too heavy a dose of truth in these reports, they'd end up being censored or blocked from reaching the executive branch level. Who was holding back the truth, and why? What good did it do America to stick its head in the sand? Well, 1943 was also the year that the OSS started to get set up and comfortable in China. Wild Bill had an operation set up in Chongqing. His man there was a naval officer and spook from naval intelligence named Milton E. Miles. I couldn't find out why, but his nickname was Mary. Mary Miles was thick as thieves with the Himmler of China, Dai Li. Dai was Jiang's chief of secret police and one of his most trusted men. He was everyone's worst nightmare. What Kangsheng was to the CCP later on, Dai Li was to the KMT. Dai Li, by the way, met Jiang Kai-shek through a mutual acquaintance named Du Yuesheng, a.k.a. Big Air Du, who we all remember as the crime boss who got his name on the marquee for the Shanghai Massacre in 1927. Dai Li is going to die mysteriously in a plane crash in March 1946. It will be rumored later on that Kang Sheng himself was the black hand behind that crash. An organization was set up that was funded by the OSS. It's known by the acronym SACO, S-A-C-O, the Sino-American Special Technical Cooperation Organization, to show the Chinese what a swell bunch of guys we were. Dai Li was put in charge as the top guy, and Mary Miles was made his deputy. Sako's role was coordinated intelligence gathering between the Chinese and Americans. There are a multitude of amazing untold stories about many of these Sako agents and their amazing and daring acts of espionage against the Japanese from Calcutta to Chongqing. There were 2,964 of them, U.S. Navy, Army, Marines, teaming up with these American servicemen were well over 100,000 Chinese, ranging from trained guerrillas to plain old soldiers of fortune and patriotic thrill-seekers. The efforts of Sako, by the way, led to the killing of more than 70,000 Japanese and the rescue of 76 downed pilots who crashed behind enemy lines. They also carried out all manners of guerrilla tactics that really slowed the Japanese down sometimes. Dai Li, in his role as Sako director, manipulated things quite well for himself. His American handlers couldn't have been more uninformed or ignorant to the secret dealings of this spy chief. Like with everything about the KMT and CCP, there are always two sides to every story, and General Dai Li has his supporters as well as his detractors. Around the time Sako was being formed, the rivalry between Chiang Kai-shek and General Stilwell was really starting to hot up. Stilwell, of course, wasn't buying into the whole myth of the Generalissimo being peddled by the U.S. authorities. Neither was the ambassador, Clarence Gauss. They both called a spade a spade. And for this, their intransigence in continuing to point at and rant about this elephant in the room, Jiang and his allies began to call for Stilwell and Gauss's removal. Jiang did not like those two guys, and the feelings were totally mutual. When John's service was back in the U.S. in December 1942, on leave, 
He was very much in demand by all the various defense intelligence agencies. Same thing at the Department of State. People were anxious to hear what he had to say. He briefed everyone and no doubt enjoyed his celebrity status as this magnificent China hand back home on leave and so willing to share the stories of his exploits. Well, not everyone was glad he was in town. He ruffled a lot of feathers with his talk about potential civil war and the ineffectiveness of the nationalist fighting force. It was one thing to censor reports, but it was hard to stop all these face-to-face encounters between service and Le 2 DC. But no matter how much bad news got out about the lack of cooperation in Chongqing and the backbiting on both sides, FDR was certain if he just picked the right guys and the chemistry was right, it would be no problem to get everyone working together to achieve all goals and objectives. FDR simply couldn't let go of this concept. Roosevelt, as it was to most American politicians who are not well-read or expert about China, looked at the situation through the prism of his American experience. FDR was a dyed-in-the-wool politician of the highest order. He completely bought into the notion that politics was the art of the possible. As Bismarck said in 1867, Just need to pick the right guys and get them all in a room together and all will work itself out. Well, that indeed may be true, but poor old FDR kept picking the wrong guys. So all these calls from Jiang's proxies for Stilwell's recall from China fell on deaf ears. General George Marshall, Roosevelt's army chief of staff, although he lived to regret it, he stuck with Joe Stilwell. He later admitted that Although Stilwell was the most competent and the most capable general to handle the mission in the CBI theater, the China-Burma-India theater, his directness and inability to work well with others just negated all the brilliance of Stilwell as a general and a strategist. John Carter Vincent, uh, one of John Service's pals from the Foreign Service, arranged an introduction between Service and Lachlan Curry. Vincent like many at state, were wary that all China policy was coming out of the White House. He was hoping if service could get through to Curry and give him an alternative picture of what was going on in China, it might allow FDR to make more informed decisions about U.S. policy there. And it was during this fateful meeting between John Service and Lachlan Curry that Service says it's, it's futile to depend solely on the CKS regime. He strongly urged Curry to reach out to the Chai Coms in Yan'an and investigate how they can be pulled into the war effort. He told Curry plainly, the way things were shaping up, civil war was inevitable, and the outcome might not be in the U.S.'s favor. Service made it clear to the president's aide that Jiang's priorities were to contain the communists first and defeat the Japanese second. And defeating Japan was probably a distant second at that. Well, he gave Curry the whole spiel from soup to nuts, and Curry requested service to write this all up in a report, you know, along with his recommendations. And if there was one thing John Service knew how to do well, it was write reports. Contained in this scathing report were straightforward statements like, quote, There appears to be a movement away from even outward forms of democracy and government. It is now no longer wondered whether civil war can be avoided, but rather whether it can be delayed at least until after a victory over Japan, 
The question is raised whether it is to Jiang's advantage or to America's own interest for the U.S. to give the KMT government large quantities of military supplies, which will be available for civil war to enforce unity in the country by military force. So many of you are wondering, what's the big deal? We all know this. But back in 1943, no one was predicting this. They didn't know. John's service was one of the first who was telling anyone who would listen. The communists were gaining popular support wherever they went. They were very effective fighting up in the north against the Japanese. The nationalist forces were hopelessly corrupt and ineffective. Jiang was stalling. Civil war was coming. And, you know, we all have to find a way to begin taking measures to hedge our bets and establish relations with the communists in Yan'an, led by Mao Zedong. Service suggested sending some kind of an official group of representatives to Yan'an to make contact with the communists and investigate options whereby the communists could be folded into the war effort against Japan. He further suggested real experts be brought in as part of the delegation who spoke Chinese and had some street cred. He purposely mentioned journalists would not be good candidates for this mission as their bias in favor of the communists was well known by then. Well, this report that John Service wrote, it was red hot and extremely radioactive. It basically went against everything that was established American policy up till now. Acting in the capacity like he was, John Service was just just a pawn being manipulated by higher-ups who used him to make their point. Service was only too happy to take on this role. So he wrote his report and brought it first to Stanley Hornbeck, who was a special advisor to Cordell Hull, and had two feet firmly planted with deep roots in the CKS camp. He was the guy who made this famous wager 10 days before Pearl Harbor that the Japanese would not dare attack the U.S. Hornbeck completely ripped Jack Service's report to shreds and dissed it in every possible way. He had it quashed, and Hornbeck made sure this report never saw the light of day. But, thanks to the amazing technologies available in the early 1940s, Service was able to use carbon paper to make copies of his report, and it was leaked all over town. And that's when things began to get ugly. Both sides began circling their wagons. These two factions, those on Jiang's side and those seeking options beyond Jiang and the Nationalists, they took off their gloves now. The old guard establishment was managing China policy through their manipulation of what got heard or read by Roosevelt and Cordell Hull. And it was going to be a cold day in hell before they allowed these Far Eastern specialists to tear down what they had built. The OSS, as I said, were getting themselves set up in China. They, too, got a look at this report that Service did, and they sent Norwood Allman to invite Service for lunch, and it was during this lunch that they tried to recruit John Service for the OSS, knowing he had already ruffled too many feathers at state and seeing how his career was going nowhere despite his dedication. Service told Allman he was game to join this new budding spy agency. The next step was to meet Wild Bill Donovan himself. Service met the living legend in February 1943. Donovan was impressed and tried to pull strings at the State Department to get service back in North China working for the OSS. But one of 
Stanley Hornbeck's protégés, Max Hamilton, chief of the China Affairs Bureau, put the kibosh on that and said, you know, such a move would be perceived negatively by Chiang Kai-shek, and no one wanted to upset the Generalissimo. So now, in early 1943, John's service has already accumulated some powerful and influential enemies. Like I said, no one liked any of these provocative observations to get out. And when a high-ranking government official quashes a report and it gets purposely leaked anyway... All roads led back to John's service. While John's service was spreading the word about the things he saw in China, Song Mei Ling was in the middle of her grand tour of the USA. She spoke before a joint session of Congress on February 18th and blew her admirers away at venues such as the Hollywood Bowl and Madison Square Garden and, of course, Henry Luce and the whole pro-Jiang cabal in Washington just built this whole thing up to be almost as wonderful as, uh, you know, the second coming of you-know-who. The drumbeat in the USA was beating loud and steady in favor of our longtime ally, nationalist China. Any talk that intimated we should get to know Mao Zedong and the Chai Coms was frowned upon. Even back then, Roosevelt was calling nationalist China one of the great democracies of the world. April 1943... John's service is back in Chongqing and told by Lachlan Curry to keep this back channel open, keep him informed of anything interesting going on there. No sugarcoating or anything. As soon as he was back in China, service was sent by Ambassador Gauss to Lanzhou to man a listening post there. Now today, this is an 18-hour drive almost due north through the mountains, but back then it was a perilous two-week trip. Mary Miles gave service a suitcase stuffed with Chinese dollars and told him to take it up to his man in Lanzhou. Service, of course, dutifully does this, and when the spooks counted the money in Lanzhou and found it was $300 short, service covered the difference himself. Lanzhou was supposed to be a one-year posting. He set himself up inside the home of some Nice Seventh-day Adventist missionaries, and in no time at all, he was churning out the usual quality stuff and keeping his superiors thoroughly informed about all the manners of things going on out in Gansu province. This one-year posting got cut short, and service was called back to Chongqing to serve in his new capacity as a political advisor to General Stilwell. This new appointment had been arranged by John Carter Vincent. Serving alongside service was his boyhood friend from Chengdu, John Patton Davies. Davies, by 1944, was very powerful and influential at the State Department where matters of China were concerned. Their job was, among other things, to keep things cool between the Departments of State and War and between the U.S. and China. Stilwell also made service his personal liaison to the communists. This made John Service effectively the sole contact person between the U.S. Army and the communists, who still maintained appearances in front of America and kept a representative in Chongqing. Even before he willingly and gladly took on this responsibility, Jack Service was already on the blackest part of Chiang Kai-shek and Dai Li's Heimingdan. But knowing he was the Army's guy to liaise with the CCP representatives, it made him even more disliked. Unbeknownst to Dai Li, Stilwell was already going around him and using his assets on the ground to carry out their own operations that could not be controlled or manipulated by Dai Li or his men. 
Word on the street at the War Department was that there was going to be a lot of action in North China as far as going in for the kill was concerned. This was where they reckoned they were going to have to have the final showdown with Japan. Because of this, the idea of cavorting with the communists up north changed from being an idea to a necessity. Service began working with the great man himself in Chongqing, Zhou Enlai, to utilize communist intelligence reports for the benefit of the U.S. Army. Service worked on a daily basis with 45-year-old Zhou. There was an 11-year difference between the two men, Zhou the senior of the two. The intel provided via Zhou Enlai was solid, proven reliable, and very well received by Stillwell staff. Nonetheless, in 1943, it was still a hard sell to talk about anything positive regarding the communists in North China. Roosevelt was still 100% committed to his man, Chiang Kai-shek, and no matter what intelligence pointed to the contrary, FDR was not going to let go of his vision of a free and democratic China with China acting as our close ally in Asia. That was the way it was going to be, and if anyone said otherwise, they were going to face stiff opposition from the White House. Winston Churchill wasn't as gung-ho about Jiang as Roosevelt was. Eh, Maybe he knew better or had better intel. Roosevelt wanted to make Jiang part of the new world order once Japan and Germany were subdued. Churchill wasn't so sure, but he had to go along with FDR as far as meeting with Jiang at the Cairo conference, and Roosevelt insisted to keep Jiang fully briefed on the outcome of the Tehran conference. This was all happening in November 1943. Madame Jiang, of course, came with her husband to Egypt to attend the meeting held within eyesight of the Giza pyramids. Roosevelt met with Jiang between November 22nd and 26th in Cairo, and then he met with Stalin in Tehran November 28th to December 1st. Of course, Churchill was with him both times. The face-to-face meeting with the Generalissimo didn't impress Roosevelt. There was something about Jiang that FDR instinctively didn't like when he finally got to meet him. And then, after meeting Stalin in person for the first time, Roosevelt, you know, his health now officially in decline, thought this was the better guy to place his chips on. He began to sense that Stalin might be the better and more stable friend to have way out in that part of the world. By the end of 1943, Jiang realized he was being toyed with by the Americans. They had been making all kinds of promises of support for years. The Burma Road was still closed, and no one had yet agreed on a strategy out in the CBI theater. 1944 was dawning, and still all the aid promised for years had not come or had not come in nearly the quantities promised. Jiang headed back to Chongqing after the Cairo meeting. Roosevelt wanted to keep Jiang apprised of what was happening in Tehran with Stalin. You know, for diplomatic reasons, you couldn't have Stalin and Chiang Kai-shek in the same room because of some treaty that was still in force between those two. You know, Russia and Japan are not at war yet. So Jiang gets back to where he once belonged, and like I said, God forbid FDR should go through the State Department to handle his foreign affairs. He still insisted to run China policy from his office. And who needed ambassadors with years of experience and a full-time staff of China experts when you had cronies who went way back and could be trusted to do what you say and you know, report what they saw? So into our story, for a brief moment, drops Major General Patrick J. Hurley. Perhaps you've all at least heard of him. 
maybe not. Now, let me say right away, he's going to be a major character in the next episode, in part three of this series on the life of John Service. In this visit, Hurley is merely an envoy from FDR, keeping Jiang briefed on the details of the Tehran conference. But later on, he is going to link arms with Jiang Kai-shek, Dai Li, and everyone else with shares in that organization, and he is going to use every microgram of his Pacific Ocean-sized ego to show unconditional support for Jiang. Hurley had been, up to this moment in his life, a respected and successful lawyer, high-level government official, and Republican Party stalwart. He had performed well in the service of his country. His military titles, however, were more earned through political successes rather than through actual battlefield experience. He did serve in World War I, though. We'll see in the uh, next episode how Hurley handled anyone who didn't toe the party line as far as complete dedication and support for the nationalist regime and its leader, John Kaishek. This was official policy, whether anyone liked it or not. But John Service and all his colleagues, not to mention some movers and shakers like General Joseph Stilwell and Ambassador Clarence Gauss, were telling anyone who would listen, John was pulling the wool over all their eyes. Stilwell, in fact, commented on FDR's blind support of Jiang when he said Roosevelt had, quote, total misapprehension of the character, intentions, authority, and ability of Jiang Kai-shek. And that Song Mei-ling had, quote, put it over FDR like a tent. Jiang's government was a one-man joke. The KMT, his tool, Madam Jiang is his front, the silly U.S. propaganda is his lever, and we are his suckers. Ah, good old Vinegar Joe. Well, by the end of 1943, FDR was still firmly lined up behind his man, Chiang Kai-shek. But after the Cairo conference, Roosevelt finally took off the rose-colored glasses and began to consider other options. John Patton Davies, Jack Service's longtime friend, had some back-channel dialogue going on with Harry Hopkins, who was one of FDR's most trusted, if not the most trusted, aide-de-camp. Davies, fully briefed by the Foreign Service officers in the field and having read all of Service's reports, was giving Hopkins the hard sell as far as, you know, looking for a backup to Jiang. Just in case, Davies put a bug in Hopkins' ear about sending out some kind of mission to Yan'an to meet up with the communists there and assess their capabilities. At this late stage, they had to see if they were people who the U.S. could work with. Davies warned Hopkins if a civil war followed and Mao prevailed in the end, the Soviets would have too big of a jump on the U.S. and China would belong to them instead of America. He reasoned with Hopkins that some sort of delegation would send a warning to Jiang about launching a civil war and would allow the U.S. once and for all to see firsthand what Mao was up to in northern Shanxi. Hopkins held on to that thought. John Service, meanwhile, was still on loan to Vinegar Joe's staff and was tasked with the usual information gathering and analysis. You know how we... China watchers in our internet age have the benefit of all those news aggregators and the blogs of dozens of experts on the ground. John's service was a one-man Google news service. If you wanted to know what was going on around Chongqing and what people were talking about or what was being written in the Chinese press, John's service provided that service. I knew that pun would come sooner or later. 
He gleaned through the Chinese newspapers in Chongqing every single morning and wrote summaries of the more important stories and compiled a daily news report that everybody read. He was already doing this before when he was part of the Foreign Service. Now, as part of Stillwell's staff, he was just doing the same thing. Jack's service, though he is going to live to regret it, was a little too generous with this information he was gathering. He had a close rapport with a lot of the journalists crammed into Chongqing. He shared a lot of this information, believing it was you know just background news and information, not too sensitive. Stillwell didn't frown on this, and no one saw any harm in these reports. Later on, service is going to have to make a lot of excuses. In early 1944... The tide was changing as far as American policy towards Jiang was concerned. Roosevelt had been you know, tiptoeing around Jiang for years and had always been as careful as possible not to offend. You know, although his broken promises of support offended you know, Jiang plenty. But now FDR was getting impatient and a lot had changed since the Cairo conference. He finally allowed himself to get talked into sending this delegation to Yan'an to meet with the communists once and for all. Jiang had done well keeping the communists and the Americans apart for all these years, but now the pressure was just too great. He finally caved on this issue and said the U.S. mission could go ahead. But he attached some conditions, of course, that you know initially prevented them from reaching Yan'an. But this, too, uh, after some arm-twisting, uh, Jiang allowed. As the months passed, it became more and more evident to the American observers in China and in Washington that the Nationalist Army was not going to be able to get the job done against the Japanese. The Japanese had launched Operation Ichigo, which was designed to blow a hole through the center of China and allow the Japanese military to go from north to south and, among other things, capture these annoying U.S. air bases that were giving them all kinds of trouble. With Roosevelt's favor beginning to fade, Operation Ichigo really took some Klieg lights and shone them on the fighting ability of Jiang's army. The Japanese just blew right through all the defenses from, from Luoyang to Changsha, Hengyang, Guilin, all the way to Liuzhou in Guangxi. By the summer of 1944, even the naysayers began to see the Nationalist Army was not effective. They had their chance for all these years. Going back to 1937, U.S. policy had been very strict in complying with all the wishes of Chiang Kai-shek regarding relations with the communists. He had always got what he wanted up till now. But with so little to show for, Chiang's authority and ability to force the Americans to bend to his will came to an end. Stillwell saw this too. He believed the scent was in the air that might allow him to push Chiang aside and take full control of the war in China and do some real damage to the Japanese army. Roosevelt had begun sending Jiang some very strong messages. Two weeks after D-Day in Europe, Henry Wallace arrived in Chongqing. He was vice president of the United States for FDR's third term. This Wallace mission was going to be the mission to end all missions and was going to force a resolution with Jiang and you know, his whole team. Wallace was tasked with talking sense to Jiang and forcing the Generalissimo in his weakened political state to back down to U.S. demands to find some way to get along with Mao and bring the communists into the fight. So this Wallace mission is going to take an already bad situation and make it much worse. And it's at this point where I really begin to sympathize with Jiang and see what a tragic figure he is in modern history. 
Chiang Kai-shek, like most of his kind, didn't buy into all the communist propaganda about their fighting prowess, their polite soldiers, and bringing great things to all these towns and villages they visited. Jiang knew probably better than anyone else what Mao was capable of. No one in America could understand Mao as well as Jiang did. After Japan went down for the count, Jiang was certain either he was going to be ruling China from Nanjing or it would be Mao Zedong ruling China from Beijing. It did nothing less than boggle Jiang Kai-shek's mind that the U.S. placed so much faith and trust in the communists. He kept trying to tell the revolving door of visiting officials from the U.S., and now Henry Wallace, that the U.S. understanding was completely naive with regard to the CCP and the Soviets, and, you know, with regard to the CCP, sincerity to maintain a united front. It was a total myth, and it wasn't going to happen. And as I said, Jiang couldn't stand the ambassador, Clarence Gauss, nor the top military guy in China, you know, Stilwell. All the people tasked with finding a solution to the problem either were lined up against one another or just couldn't stand each other. That was the essence of the problem. Despite all the expert advice being given, the general mood in Washington, you know, so far away from Chongqing, was that, well, if the U.S. can do just fine with two political parties at each other's throats, surely Mao and Jiang could figure out some way to get together. Nobody was reading the fine print. It was classic FDR sending these emissaries, you know, to kibitz with Jiang and try and bend his ear to cozy up to Mao, and then we could all join together and whip Japan. So after two visits from Lachlan Curry and then from Wendell Wilkie and others, along comes the U.S. VP, Henry Wallace, with his delegation consisting of China experts Owen Lattimore and John Carter Vincent. What followed was another classic case of a bungled mission. Man, if they only had the Internet back then. Events were happening faster on the ground than the communicated instructions could provide for. So when John's service showed up at an afternoon session of the Wallace-Jiang meeting, right away the mood changed. By now, Jiang and Madame Jiang knew very well who John's service was, and as far as they were concerned, he was Mao's secret agent. He was an enemy to the Jiang regime. And now this dangerous stooge of the communists was suddenly involved in their negotiations with the Americans. And, you know, they knew, he knew what they knew about what they had up their sleeve, about what was going to happen when. So, Jiang was in the room with Wallace, and he's frustrated because these guys obviously have no understanding or appreciation for the political situation in China. He knew they were living in a dream as far as Mao and the communists went. And now into this meeting walks John Service, who Jiang considered one of Mao's biggest cheerleaders in the U.S. contingent in Chongqing. The U.S. negotiators had Jiang backed into a corner, and no longer could the Generalissimo hold them at bay and use his prestige, real or imagined, to keep the Americans from talking openly and freely with the communists. Now he bowed to the inevitable and gave the reluctant okay to allow an American observer group to visit Yan'an. And that is where we are going to pick up next time at the Royal China History Podcast. The upshot of the June 1944 Wallace mission was that what later became known as the Dixie Mission is going to get green-lighted and we'll move ahead. And that's for next time. For now, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the Spring Hill Suites, a Marriott company, here in Bentonville, Arkansas. Yes, the Bentonville, Arkansas, county seat of Benton County. I'm here for a couple of presentations to one of the local businesses here and then back to Claremont tomorrow night.
So, John's Service Part 3, coming next week, the Dixie Mission and the whole irritating and frustrating debacle of Patrick Hurley's time there. If you can't wait the 10 days to 2 weeks for the next episode to come out to find out what happens, go ahead and buy Lynn Joyner's book, Honorable Survivor. Take care, everyone, and I hope you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.